to Success Beneath the Surface, hosted by Deborah Fell, Managing Partner at Chief Outsiders. Deborah provides insights specifically for CEOs from growth-oriented companies. So, Peter Schwartz, you have over 30 years of experience taking early-stage concepts and companies to maturity. You became a Vistage Chair in 2005, and you have won virtually every award they give twice over. So one question is, why do you do all you do? But I'd like to start in a different place and really just have you share a little bit about your story, how you got from there to here. Well, I started out professionally when AT&T was being deregulated. And my first job out of college was selling telephone systems in a newly deregulated environment. And uh, I happened to be good at it. Well, in the beginning, in selling it was a bit of a challenge, but to sell something that nobody had ever bought before, I could do that. And so I progressed on that until I got into senior sales positions, ended up having my own long distance resale company for a while, and did a internet startup, starting a company in telecom. And it did fine for a while, but where my leadership kind of focus began was the last gig that I did, which was an internet startup. I was a part of the leadership team. And, you know, what I realized somewhere along the way that the only place I have 100% influence is how I'm showing up as a leader. And when I realized that, and I have a story, I don't know how much time you have for this, but I can tell you to it really quick. Please. I was in charge of sales and the entire revenue generation of the product. And I had to deliver on a certain milestone and we would get our next round of investment. And none of the senior executives had been paid in like eight weeks, maybe even longer. I had just gone through a divorce and I had a child support check that couldn't be late. And yeah. so you can imagine the pressure I was feeling to deliver this in this environment. And the president of the company sees me walking around the hallway one day and he drags me into his office and he says, what the heck is wrong with you? I don't know what you're talking about. And he says, I can tell by the look on your face that you think we're going out of business. And I said, I don't know. I'm just a little concerned. He says, and I'll phrase this as delicately as I can. He said, and this is a true story. He said, go home, get your head out of your ass and never come back in this building without your game face on. Wow. And I wanted to reach across the table and punch him in the nose, but I went home, <laughs> had a temper tantrum in my house. And about three hours in, I realized he was right. Somehow it dawned on me. And I would say that that's one of five business lessons that I could count on my right hand that constitute my MBA in business. But what I learned from that lesson was that leaders bring the weather. Oh, and wow. that was maybe the start of it, where yeah. I started to really get fascinated with this notion of leadership and the whole way you go about developing yourself. And so this would be back in the mid-90s. And it's been a fascination and now a passion of mine ever since. And so when you started with Vistage? Were you just like you started and things just soared? Well, I don't know that they soared. I started with a CEO group. It was my first group. The next thing that came after that was a key executive group. That's the level one level below the CEO. And at that time, I was still a principal in a consulting firm. So I ran with two groups for a while. Mm -hmm. When the consulting firm was sold, I decided to start my second CEO group. Mm -hmm. And I would say that's when the trajectory of success that I've enjoyed with Vistage really started to take off was when I had those groups together. And I started to get the visibility that, you know, I now currently enjoy. I wonder what about having two groups was the difference 
Well, it became my full-time pursuit. There was okay. nothing but my Vistage okay. practice. Both feet in. Yeah. And my executive coaching sideline gigs. I, I mean, I'll always have private clients just because I want that kind of mix of activity. Yes. Yes. Well, you are certainly well-known for your leadership and how strong and impactful of a Vistage chair that you are. Well, thank you. And I will tell the story because I knew of you for years and had met you as you came and brought a leadership development workshop to one of our regional meetings. But I remember just a little bit over a year ago when I was at a networking event and I saw you, but what was different is I saw you making a bead. You had a bead on me. You were heading over to me. I could see Peter Schwartz is definitely coming my way. You walked right up to me and you said, Deborah, I'm starting a trusted advisor group. And then I said, yes. I don't know if you remember this. And you said, well, let me ask my question. And I said, yes. And so then we met for coffee and I joined the group, but I was just clear. There was no question in my mind that any group you started where I was a fit, I was going to jump no, in that's, there. That's very kind of you. So you're well known in, in that regard. And you also talk about mastering the inner and the outer game. Now, is that a Vistage thing? Is that a Peter Schwartz no, thing? No, actually, that's a, a, I, the, I think that term was coined by a, a guy by the name of Galway. And I forget his first name. He wrote these inner game books. This is 20 or 30 years ago. In fact, his first inner game book was the inner game of tennis. And then he wrote the inner game of golf. This guy was uh, profiled on 60 Minutes. And he talked about that the reason why some golfers are great and some golfers aren't so great is the head trash. That seems to talented world-class golfers, but the head trash gets in the way. And he wrote a, a series of books about this. His final book was The Inner Game of Work. And that's where I got the term, the outer game and the inner game. And I've been fascinated with the inner game for 25 years and what it takes to grow the complexity of your mind. And that's what I'll use the term for is complexity of mind. And the reason why that's an important skill or an important task to undertake is the world is becoming more complex. You need to be able to keep up with that in the way that you deal with that complexity and how you do that is the mental complexity. Some outer game skills and knowledge, but run by an interior that's equipped to handle the complexity of the situation, if that makes sense. It makes tons it's, of sense. It's kind of like a computer's operating system where we take for granted the operating system has to be upgraded on a regular basis so it can do more complex things. Well, that's exactly true for human beings and particularly around leadership. We enter careers wanting to become expert at something. And you you probably did yourself as you were coming up and you became a subject matter expert or domain expert in your lane. And you developed expertise around that. And that's what we're supposed to be doing as adults. And you became a really good, strong individual contributor. And because of that, you got promoted into a realm where your individual subject matter expertise doesn't matter anymore. It's about everybody else's and you coaching up everybody else's subject matter expertise. And that requires a whole different mindset. It's a big shift because I do remember when I had to actually let go of being the individual contributor because if you're leading people and still trying to be an individual contributor, I think they call that micromanagement, yeah. which I had to get out of that box. Well, and so, you know, the inner game, we craft a way that we want to be experienced by others in adolescence and in young adulthood. 
And we want to perfect that and become expert in that. And there's three major lanes that that will fall into. And one is I want to be seen as likable and approachable. Nothing wrong with that. We really craft it and perfect it. And because we think in order to be safe, secure, and worthwhile in this world, we need to be likable. Nothing wrong with that success strategy. The other one is in order to be successful and safe in this world, I need to be seen as competent. And we develop expertise about showing ourselves to the world as competent. And the third one would be about achieving. In order to be safe, secure, and worthwhile in this world, I need to be seen as achieving in the eyes of others. That's an expertise. It's not just outer game expertise. It's this yeah. identity that we choose to perfect. As young adults, we don't even realize we're doing it, but we act it out and it works. It gets us promoted. But at the moment you're promoted, and if you're running a frame that is, you need to be likable, you can imagine how challenging Yes. Difficult conversations with direct reports are going to be if that's the, the frame or the inner game software you're going to deploy into that conversation. So that's what I mean by uh, leadership development and the inner game. It's evolving up this notion of relationship to be more about respect and performance as opposed to being liked. And that is rigorous stuff. And getting the eyes and the mind open to it experiencing it. Yep. And these are journeys. And that's why I call it leadership development or leadership journeys, because, you know, from start to finish, these types of mental stage development leaps can take three years, start to finish. So in running a Vistage group, a CE group, and I know everyone doesn't have to know all about the terminology and Vistage to understand what you're talking about, but in running a peer-based group of chief executive officers, how do you, I know it's through questions that I, I've seen you operate, but how do you cause that to occur in the meetings? What specifically to occur? To have them see things in a different way. That's really the great question because you can't really force this. I consider that malpractice. You can invite yeah. a CEO to see a, a perspective that's a little different than the current one they currently yes. hold. And there's a real art to this. And in 18 years that I've been doing this, and I coach other Vistage chairs, as you know, what I've come to recognize is the chair really has to go first. I have had to be on this journey of personal transformation yes. and have gone through this myself to recognize what it feels like to do this. It's not easy at times, and it feels fraught with risk because you're putting your identity at risk. So I have a sensitivity for the CEOs that I work with when I'm challenging them Yes. with their own thinking that is the thing that's actually getting in the way. So it's holding, in Vistage, we call a carefrontation. It's the respect and dignity of the individual with challenge mm -hmm. so that they see that, oh my God, I'm actually the reason why we're not getting the thing done. And the idea for the chair is to help the group learn how to ask the same types of questions that mm -hmm. I would ask. And when you get a Vistage group, that's empowered and equipped and emboldened and willing to ask these kinds of questions, magic can happen. I've seen amazing things happen with members when they're supported in this kind yes. of a way. Yes. And are not with names, but are, are you able to give an example of what you mean? Because we're talking about something very abstract, potentially. Yeah. And I'll talk about it in two ways. The first is most CEOs have trouble that I've ever worked with letting go of underperforming employees. And the reason why is it could be any of those three identities I talked about. They don't want to be disliked. 
They think that they're so smart and brilliant. They think they can fix it, whatever it is. We hang on to these underperformers way longer than we should. And this goes on all the time in Vistage groups, particularly with brand new members. And what happens with a member that is willing to share this with the group and be vulnerable about their fears around all this is they actually learn how to um, recognize performance gaps earlier. They're yes. willing to address them earlier. And if the person has to be exited from the company, they exit them earlier. And that's an example. And we all know that's a good thing. Yes. There's, I mean, there's many examples. Uh, a lot of CEOs are highly identified with their own subject matter expertise. They were smart engineers that started yes. a company. And so what they need to learn is it's not about how brilliant they are anymore. It's about inviting smart ideas from everybody else so that we can address a collective problem. Yes. So that's a transition from me to us. It's all relational if you really think about it, yeah. in my view. There are a lot of outer game skills that we take on in Vistage groups and Vistage speakers will address that and member experiences will address it. But really where I think the value proposition is is how a good Vistage group will support a member uh, coming into awareness of their own mental beliefs and mindsets, mm -hmm. how it may be getting in the way. So they can each probably relate in some way to whatever that journey is, and they've either been through it or they are going through it and now see it in that other person, which is probably very powerful. It's very powerful, and that's exactly what happens in a, in a well-run Vistage group. I um, visit other Vistage groups as a part of my role as a best practice chair. And I can tell you high-performing groups that are about five years older yeah. are much more efficient in the way that they run issues. They, they just get right to it. And they learn how to ask the right kinds of questions. They don't hold back. It's fun to watch. You said the word vulnerability a few minutes ago. Can you speak to the importance of that in the Vistage group, whether it's getting someone to the place of being willing to be vulnerable or you being vulnerable? Speak well, the chair always has to lead, always. Uh, I have to model the thing that I'm asking for, right? So it starts with me. But I'll take Brene Brown's definition of vulnerability. It's simply a willingness to be seen, unfiltered. And so it could be, as a CEO of the business, I don't think I'm very good on balance sheets and income statements and being able to share with the group that, you know, I, I kind of suck at it. And then now the group can help them. Yeah. But there has to be this moment of this willingness to be able to see something that I'm actually embarrassed to talk about. So what, what brings you the most reward in your role? Because it's Vistage Chair, but it seems like it's so much bigger than that. Like a seer, you know, a, so many different things in this role or, or that you bring to it. Well, that's a big question, uh, you know. I tell uh, folks that I get two paychecks every month. I get the Vistage paycheck and I get an emotional paycheck. And so in most months, the emotional one is bigger than the financial one. And now it's time for a quick break. CEOs need help growing their companies, but don't always have the time or money to hire a full-time chief marketing officer, CMO, or chief sales officer, CSO, or both. Recruiting a quality full-time executive can take months, not to mention the ongoing cost. In these challenging times, CEOs need battle-tested growth executives who can help companies successfully navigate the uncertain waters. Partner with Chief Outsider CMOs and CSOs who will function as strategic operators to build and execute your growth engines. And we're back. 
I'm going to just lump this into the category of I get to be a participatory companion. I just walk side by side with these American heroes of business. That's to me, the small business owner is the hero of American business. These are the folks that they've been through the recession of 2008. I don't know how many government shutdowns, COVID, inflation, supply chain, and they're still battling. They're still doing the right thing for their employees and their customers. And these stories hardly ever get told in the Wall Street Journal. So the privilege of my life, and I mean that for my professional life, is to work with these folks and have these long journeys with them. I've had members with me 17 years. Wow, seriously. I've watched kids get born and go to college. Wow. And so that to me, if you ask me what the most inside of that, just walking with a CEO and offering them the perspectives that I can, uh, helping them get what they need from the group. That's an amazing experience for me. You know, I hear that passion and, and that emotion coming out when you speak to it, you should write a book or start your own podcast. You, you have them, you can tell all their stories. Well, I'm signing up for your podcast. I'm telling I, you. I have some stories. I mean, uh, I have, I have some really good stories. Some I probably can't talk about because it was done in confidence. Right. Of course. So there's more to Peter Schwartz than Vistage. I know Vistage is a really, really big piece of your life and your passion and you put everything into it. And, and I've seen that, that firsthand and we can all see it here. But what else is part of your, your journey? Well, I'm married and I have a, you know, a relationship and I have a son. So there's my personal life. Yes. And a small group of friends, uh, but deep friendships. Yeah. So yeah. that's what's going on. You know, I like to be outside outdoors. I like doing the national parks with my son. In fact, next week I'm, I'm flying out to Monument Valley with my son. It's our first father-son trip since he went to college. So this is like 15 years ago. Yeah, wow. So that kind of thing. Is this the son I met at yeah. your? Yeah, your yeah, time? yeah. I only have the I only have one son, so that would be it. That's great. That's yeah. great. And I know uh, maybe you could talk just for a couple minutes uh, about your journey in Spain. So, well, I'll just start by saying I'm fairly spiritual. Uh, when I was in grammar school, I thought I'd become a Catholic priest. I went to Catholic school. So I took a trip to the seminary and I realized that weekend that the only harsher environment than my home life at the time was the <laughs> ceremony. And that was before I realized you had to be celibate. But it didn't kill the impulse. Yes. And, and just a funny, real funny story. When I was in high school, I went to a Catholic high school and, uh, you know, very dogmatic. And I have... Um, a part of me that wants to push back on dogma. And so I flunked religion on purpose in high school, Catholic high school, just because I wasn't going to say yes to the dogma. And I was a National Honor Society student in my junior year. So that raised a lot of eyebrows wow. uh, at home and in the school. And I quickly learned that that wasn't a good idea. So I told them what they wanted to hear the next semester and got my A. Uh-huh. But, it, but it launched me on a spiritual journey yeah. because the question didn't go away. And I started to explore mythologies. I minored in it in college, and I've I've studied the world religions. And interestingly enough, I think there's a piece of CEO coaching, what I do, that has an element of spiritual direction. So isn't that interesting? A kind of intersection of an impulse of mine that started way back, yes, um, aligned with some business experience 
and I never lead with spiritual language. Yeah. But I believe I'm, you know, when I'm talking with you, for example, there's a there's an element of spirit involved in yes. why not make note of that? And I'm a big fan of poetry. And so I follow a poet called David White. He's well known in organizational circles. He uses poetry to do organizational development. So I followed him for years, learned a lot from him. And I was at a workshop of his and a, one of his colleagues talked about the Camino de Santiago. Ah. And I was intrigued by it because I think it was about that time I turned 60 and I thought, and I had this restlessness. I didn't know how to label it. And because everything was going well for me, my personal life was great. My professional life is great. I'm healthy. Why am I feeling this way on my 60th birthday? Yes. And I realized it was creative tension. And what that means is I know there's something else that's there for me to do. It's not about another trophy. It's just something else that I'm supposed to do. I don't know what it is yet. Why don't you go for a walk and see if you get an answer? <laughs> <laughs> so I went on the, I did the Camino de Santiago when Long I was 16. Walk. Yeah, it was 500 miles, 35 days. Wow. Wow. And you left, I remember, because I read some of your postings. You wrote every day, right? I, I blogged. I didn't intend to do that. But I ended up blogging and not a big blog. It was maybe a couple, three sentences yeah. and, and a photo for the day. Yes. And I ended up getting a pretty big following. And one of my members captured the photo and the blog post for the day and put it in a book for me. Wow. Yeah. And he asked me, do you have anything that you want to write in the way of your Camino yes. uh, thoughts? And I, and I came up with four revelations and it's in the book. And it's is that Gordon Bernhardt's book? No, no. This is uh, one of my, it's this this self-printed little book of oh, okay. my, my oh, photos and my blog posts. Wonderful. That's awesome. You know, I, I'm just amazed. And you talk about feeling and you didn't use the word intuitive in our conversation today, but you are incredibly intuitive. I have a strong intuitive capability. Yeah. By the way, there's some evidence that intuition can be developed. And if you know Collins is level five leaders. Yes. Level five leaders are a good bunch of them are highly intuitive. And just in listening, you know, you talk about your spiritual and there's sort of a thread of that throughout your life and even how you show up and how you bring and communicate. It is really interesting to be in a conversation with you because it's always, you were always very intense, but not intimidating or off-putting it's just the feeling that you are right there there's two people in the world you and the person you're talking to at least that's my experience and oh, I almost you. it almost feels like you draw people in and then they pay attention to what you're paying attention to is that I don't know if that makes any sense at all well I've been accused of intense forever and I used to resent being said that about me and then I just finally embraced it because I'm not changing but it's interesting you describe it that way because I am intensely curious about the person I'm talking to. I don't know what that is. I just am fascinated yeah. to be around an intelligent person. Yeah. I mean, I don't want it to mean not so smart people, but if I'm with a person that's got an engine and is smart and yeah. has got a life going on, I'm just fascinated by that. And so I'm, I just have to learn more. So I think my observation is that one of the greatest gifts you have is really this listening 
which is a recognition of other people. And I think one of the greatest gifts that you give is to help people sort of this listen, listen and understand themselves and start to feel perhaps in some similar ways that you're feeling, gain some intuition. They may not be as intuitive as you are about everybody else, but to gain intuition about oneself through the recognition that someone else gives you is kind of an amazing circle. Since you're bringing it up, I've heard consistently in the 18 years I've been a Vistage chair that I help people get clear about things. And that to me is a wonderful compliment. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So well, do you want to hear my four revelations? I do. I do want to hear your four revelations. You probably can't believe she didn't ask. <laughs> Please, share. First one is travel light. So in the Camino, you want to, you carry the same backpack and uh, you want to, you don't want to carry a heavy one. So the guidebook said to keep it under 25 pounds. So I, I attempted to do that because you're going to carry 25 pounds for 35 days. Yeah. yeah. Travel light. And so as a metaphor for business, you want to travel light and travel light means don't overreach on the, on this business. Don't get office space more than what you need. Don't, don't do all the things that turn out to be weight in the knapsack when you're climbing up a hill. But the uh, travel light thing is part of our earlier conversation is shed all the mental beliefs that no longer belong to you. So that's weight on the knees. Yeah. So travel light. The second one is travel with soft eyes. So when I walk the Camino, there's little signposts along the way. And sometimes they're clearly marked. And sometimes you go through a really a medieval town, believe it or not. It's just old. And you would see a traditional red, yellow arrow, would, which would point the way. But sometimes those yellow arrows were hard to find. And in the early parts of the Camino, I, I'm literally, my self-talk is, well, I know what I'm doing. I'll go this way. <laughs> and that conviction that I actually know what the hell I'm doing and I don't. And two or three times I went down the wrong road. And you don't want to carry a 25-pound backpack too many miles that you have to rewalk. Yep. And so soft eyes is this notion that all the information that you will ever need to complete your journey is there. You just have to soften the gaze and stop looking for the answers where you think they're going to be and just be available to the information that's mm -hmm. available mm -hmm. and we'll point it out to you. So travel with soft eyes. The third one is the joy is in the walking. So I get to Santiago de Compostela. I go into the cathedral, magnificent cathedral mass. And uh, I'm walking back to my pilgrim hotel that night. And the only thought on my mind wasn't the grandeur of the cathedral. It was the 34 days of walking I just did. And I remember many times on a day's walk where I'd be really just exhausted sweat all day long, flies buzzing around me down another hill that was gravelly because I have some weak knees and starting to get a little mentally bitchy. Then a voice would say, pick your head up and look around. And almost every time that would be the picture of the day. Wow. And when I realized that that day's walking got me that view. And the lesson for CEOs is that's you get good with the everyday walking, get good with the ordinary parts of the job you don't like to do. You have to do. And when you do them, you get the view of the day, which could be that moment that employee breaks through. It could be that customer contact. It could be anything. But every day there's a view of the day, but you only get it if you're willing to do the walking. Yes, yes. 
And the fourth one is, this was my Camino moment, uh, this notion of wabi-sabi. And I got that term from my wife, who's an artist. She spent a lot of time in Japan. The early part of the Camino, I'm literally walking across ancient Roman roads through, I can't tell you how many ancient villages that some were built because of the Camino. And these ancient churches where the wind and the, and the rain had just, just degraded the exterior of the building, but it was so beautiful to look at. And the notion of wabi-sabi is to find the beauty in the imperfection of things, the incompleteness of things, perfection and complete impermanence of things. My moment was uh, at Cruz Furrow. You walk up a mountain, there's the iron cross up there. You carry a rock with you to symbolize a burden that you're supposed to leave behind. I get to the top, I drop my rock, and the walk down was really long and hard on my knees. I get to the hotel that night, I'm exhausted to the point where I can't even walk from the registration desk to the room. Get in, take a shower, walking to my bed, I see my face in the mirror and I was shocked. It was an old man's face. It was my father's face. And, uh, and I was shocked by what I saw. And I'm walking to the bed and, and I said, wait a minute, get back in front of that mirror. And I get emotional even talking about it now. Get good with the face and the person behind the face that's not permanent, not perfect and not complete. So wabi-sabi. So to me, that's as good as it gets in business. You're not going to be perfect ever. It's not going to be complete ever. Yes. And nothing is ever permanent. The only thing you can really go for is growth. And that kind of netted it out for me. And if I was going to boil down what I do now or my what it's all about for me, yes. it's just growth. Yes. In and all the domains. Yeah. Yeah. That's a perfect end note. I think this is called complete. Okay. Thank you for uh, walking the walk with me on this podcast and very powerful stuff. Peter, as always, thank you so much. Well, Deborah, thank you. Be sure to subscribe in all your favorite podcast apps. Just look for Success Beneath the Surface. Chief Outsiders, part-time growth executives with full-time results.